We've been going through a, a series, as you know, uh, following on from our Gilgal series, and uh, Al's been taking the last few weeks um, looking at Jericho, and specifically a passage in Joshua 5, which I am going to start with, and then I'm going to springboard off that and just talk what I, about what I want to talk about instead. Um, that's another joke. Um, you just, you're going to have to switch into Chris gear here from Al gear. Um, but it's been brilliant to talk about that. And, and one of the, the challenges that I think has been really important, I'm not going to talk about it too much today, really at all, but that Al brought that I think we need to just keep going around um, in our heads about is this whole idea um, <clears throat> that when God isn't on a side, that he comes to take over that one of the things that's a real challenge for us in this country is that we live still in a divided society. And um, I don't know if you know this, but in April it will be 25 years since the Good Friday Agreement, and there still has been no reconciliation process in this land. And when you don't reconcile, you're doomed to repeat. And the rise in uh, terrorist activity of recent days from, from both sides has shown that that is a possibility um, for us. So it's something just to bear in mind. Um, but uh, let's just read. You can follow along on the screen or on your Bible. Um, uh, this passage again in Joshua 5, and then we'll kind of just pick uh, move on from it um, a little bit. We'll take some of the principles from it. So Joshua 5 from verse 13. And it says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. Then Joshua fell down, uh, on, face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So this encounter with the angel of the Lord brings clarity at a pivotal moment that God doesn't take sides, he takes over. Um, and it should uh, serve as a reminder that God's chosen people were not chosen instead of everyone else, but for the benefit of everyone else. And so actually, if you look back into um, the, the kind of the, the start of this, this people group that God chose and, and set aside to Genesis 12, where God speaks to um, Abram at the time, um, and it says these words, Abram being the father of the, the Jewish nation, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God's plan was to take a people, set apart. Now, which the word set apart is actually what holy means. It means set apart. It means, it means different. Um, so actually, Joshua's experience of meeting the angel of the Lord was that the angel of the Lord says, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. You're, you're set apart. We're, we're different um, from all the other gods. And this is something that Joshua needed to get. 
they were about to enter the promised land, but there were lots of people already there, and there were lots of gods already there too. And so Joshua is reminded at the very start, you need to be set apart here. You're a people set apart. You're following a set apart God who is holy. Just interesting to note, isn't it, that the angel's sword was drawn, um, and you kind of wonder well, what would have happened if Joshua had had not given the right response to that angel if its posture had been different. He takes his shoes off, becoming aware that he's standing on holy ground. You see, the thing is about the ground: the ground is not holy so much as the presence of God was holy. But he had to acknowledge that that God is different, and if I'm going to follow Him, I need to be different too. This is a clear echo back to the encounter that Moses had at the burning bush where God recruited Moses into his plan. Now Joshua is having a similar recruiting moment and a clear picture of three things. God is in control. God is on his own side. And you're being invited to participate in his plan. You need to follow carefully, like someone walking barefoot, on holy ground. And throughout Joshua's time as a leader, that metaphor should have been in his mind. And we see that actually, that the battles that Joshua was successful in were the ones where he followed exactly what God told him and how God told him to walk. And the battles that were disasters was when he didn't do that, when he went, oh, I know how this goes now. Come on, we'll go and do this other battle because that one worked this way last time. Bang, it didn't work. God was teaching him a lesson. You follow the way that I show you. You walk carefully because you're actually always walking on holy ground because I am with you. My presence is with you. And we need to get that too, don't we? That we are, as uh, people who are temples of the Holy Spirit, walking on holy ground, that we, we choose and we need to walk carefully because God is with us. I always think about, um, when, I, when that thought goes through my head, I always think about Mary. It's a good time at Christmas to be thinking about her. But the fact that she was carrying the actual presence of God must have made her think, act, and walk like really, really carefully. She's literally carrying the Messiah. Um, and if we're carriers of God's presence, how do we walk carefully in the world that we're in? So... God's on his own side. Whose side was Jesus on is my next question. When we move forward to the Gospels, Jesus enters an environment where there are many sides, many groupings, many us versus thems, people who are constantly trying to recruit Jesus into their tribe or their place or put him in either their category or the category that is against theirs. And so that's a, a very common narrative we see throughout the Gospels. But you know what? Jesus doesn't really do boxes very well at all. When you read the Gospels, you find that he doesn't cooperate with the world systems very often. People want him to. Come on, Jesus, what side are you on of this argument or this discussion so that we know? Because either you're on our side or you're against us. <clears throat> and so throughout his ministry, people try to pull him in, in their direction or push him away in the other. And... Um, we would call this polarization, and polarization is a, is a massive thing within our culture, uh, and so I want to just define it um, briefly so that we know what we're thinking about. So a, a dictionary definition of polarization is to divide or cause to divide into sharply contrasting groups or sets of opinions or beliefs. 
It's where we get the whole concept about polar opposites, completely different, completely opposed. And so let me give you an example from scripture. Um, I'm not going to look at it in too much depth. It's, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I absolutely love so many things that are going on in it, but I'm just going to go through it very quickly. And I want you to see where the person that Jesus is interacting with constantly tries to, to, to put them in an adversarial position because actually that's what she feels comfortable with and that's what she's used to. So it's in John chapter 4. It's a story of the woman at the well. Um, and from verse 4, it says this. It's on the screen as well. Now, he had to go through Samaria because they were on their way somewhere else. And he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, and who knows if that's the right pronunciation. Near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was noon. And I always say, if that was me, that was where the story would finish, because I was tired, and I don't really interact with people too well when I'm tired. Um, God thinks it's funny to make me interact with people when I'm tired. That uh, just keeps me humble. So anyway, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Okay, for Jews don't associate with Samaritans. You see the polarization there? Okay. Now, if you go on down a few verses, I think they're about 18 or 19. So... After Jesus speaks into her pain about the brokenness in her life that she's had four husbands and that this man that she's living with now hasn't even had the respect to, to marry her, he speaks into that, that place of brokenness. If you know the story, if you don't, go and read it. She, in response to Jesus, actually reaching into her heart, and she goes, Sir, I can tell you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim to, that the place you must worship in, is in Jerusalem. So she wants to reestablish the polarization. We're against you. You're against us. We have completely different beliefs. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. So he actually affirms the polarization in that way statement, but then he says this, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So having said, look, you're right, you know, you think this, we think that, something's about to change where actually we all get to be part of this new thing. And in fact, Jesus uses the word, he says, you will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Same Father, we're all going to worship him because we're part of the same family. So when Jesus asks a woman for a drink, it's a radical action which reaches across these cultural and gender barriers. Her automatic reaction is to push the conversation back into a polarized perspective because he has stepped across a boundary that you're not supposed to cross. She seems to be comfortable with these polarized arguments. And in fact, she uses that when, when Jesus starts getting to the heart of her issues to push back and to say, oh no, you're over here, I'm over here. Let's, let's just keep, that, um, keep ourselves apart. She had an expectation that Jesus would play the role of 
um, his side of the wall of the well-rehearsed argument, and that she would play hers, and they would, you know, if they needed to interact at all, it would be on that basis. Um, it's amazing how often in life people try to do that, isn't it? That we try to set up as adversarial positions, or I'm part of this and you think that, because um, there's, that's actually control. Um, but uh, there's a little phrase that floats around in social media, which I think is really good, and it says, um, you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. And Jesus was invited to that argument, but he chose not to attend it. In, in, in that way, he chose to reimagine it and to step across the boundaries instead. And if you take time to study this passage, you will see that Jesus has to overcome these cultural barriers and te start telling it a different story. As he does that, the opportunity comes for her to hear the good news about the kingdom of God. It actually leads to revival of an entire Samaritan town at the end of the story. But notice how Jesus lets this woman into a perspective of a different way. A time has come, is coming, and has now come when all this stuff won't matter, when everyone is welcome. But he had to break through those boundaries of us and them to get to that place and to tell that story. And throughout Jesus' ministry, what we see is that there were Jews and there were Gentiles. There was the rich and there were the poor. There was the Pharisees who were like the religious elite and all the other Jews. There were Jewish terrorists fighting um, against the Roman oppressors. There was the clean and there was the unclean. So Jesus... Seeing and, and being aware of all these barriers, he um, completely ignores them. He heals Jews. He heals Gentiles. He heals a servant of a Roman centurion. He heals unclean lepers and a woman with 12 years of bleeding. He tells a story about a good Samaritan. Each time he crosses a barrier, a separating line to do it. It's almost as if he doesn't know the rules that the rules maybe don't even apply to him, or that he's just ignoring them. Isn't that great? But the challenge for us is, do we do the same thing, or do we play by the rules that exist in our society and in our culture? You see, the religious leaders of the day were disgusted and appalled. Like, doesn't he know who he's, that he's eating with a sinner? Appalled and I'm going to Zacchaeus' house. They try to involve him in, in arguments um, that they love to have and debate. You know, who should we pay taxes to? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they're against us. And Jesus is like, whose who's head is on, on that coin? We'll give to Caesar what is Caesar's. They're shocked when a woman's tears fall on his dirty feet and she wipes them with his hair. And they say, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who this is and what kind of woman is touching him, for she is a sinner. She's one of them. She's not one of us. I'm surprised that no one uh, asked him what side he was on. And in fact, some ways they decided because they said, well, if he casts out demons, he must be the prince of demons. He must be evil because he does things that we don't do. And we are obviously good. And they made that conclusion. Ultimately, in his death, he seems to end up on the wrong side again. There he is, hanging between two thieves. 
sinners rightly tried and convicted, but he's completely innocent and he finds himself with them. And even then, he finds another way to break out of the polarized opinion. Here are the justly tried sinners, and Jesus is amongst them. And he transforms the life of one of them who's willing to listen. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He changes the narrative of that man almost at the point of his death. You see, his uh, betrayal and his death was a desire by the religious authorities to stop him messing up their system of control over their people and their tentative peace with the Romans. They wanted everything to go back into everybody staying in their comfortable, safe little boxes. Sometimes we use the phrase, a third way, to describe this path that Jesus took, and no doubt that has merit. Jesus sees all the boundaries and all the categories, all the ways that people try to seek identity, value, purpose from being part of one group or another. And he just chooses a different way. He, like the foreshadowing figure who appeared before Joshua, isn't on the side where the battle lines have been drawn. He's taken over. You see, that's the thing about that story in Joshua, is that Joshua had defined the battle lines. He had said, children of Israel, this is us, we're good. Jericho, these people in this land, they're bad. I've decided it's us against them. And Jesus says, oh, is it? I, I, you define those battle lines. I'm going to redefine them and in a completely different way. And you can choose, he says, with sword drawn, Whose side do you want to be on? Do you want to be on their side, your side, or my side? Joshua makes a good choice. You see, God's on his own side. We better try to find out what side we're on and decide whether we want to be on his side instead. How do we be like Jesus and move beyond this polarized way of thinking and living, can we allow him to take over? And if he takes over, will he take us out of our place of comfort and our place of security and our, our place of identity of being part of us as opposed to being part of them? Maybe we end up not on, on his side far too often, especially when we find ourselves on the side of the majority or the side of the oppressor. A position we often actually find ourselves occupying but seldom realize that we're actually there. The more I look into to poverty, the more I find that we are on the side of the oppressor because we're not on the side of the oppressed. The more I look into issues around climate change and global warming, I find the same thing. We are on the side of the oppressor because the people who are being oppressed are not us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Sometimes we think, well, I'm not part of this, I'm not part of that, but actually in our inaction, we have chosen a side. That's really challenging, isn't it? So the words that, he, that Jesus spoke pointed to a new way of living, 
those who worship in spirit and truth. And John the Apostle gave us a, a foretaste of what Jesus came to do when he wrote um, at the start of his gospel. This is John 1, verses 9 to 12. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. These are the people that are on the side of God, those that have been born into his family, regardless of who they are. This is no longer about who's in or who's out based on being part of a chosen people or by the, the fluke of birth. This is a new humanity open to all who call on the name of the Lord. So let me just quickly work through four things I want to talk about that. The first is understand that we're part of a new humanity. The second is understand the times and the battle lines that are very often drawn in our society. The third is stop participating automatic, automatically in the toxic, toxic narratives of our society. And the fourth is live in the reality of the new humanity. Making the crossing of invisible barriers a normal practice. You see, most normal practices in the kingdom were once radical ones, and they need to, again, be radical ones as we step across the barriers and boundaries of our society, the unspoken rules, the us's and the them's, to something different, to something better. So number one, a new humanity. The culture of the kingdom, as it evolved, was radical in its views on people and new churches find themselves at odds with the prevailing narrative of the day. Wherever a new church was planted, they had a problem because there were all these categories of people who stayed apart, who were against each other, who didn't mix for all sorts of different reasons, depending on which city or town you went to. And those apostles carrying the good news had to tell a different story. And so they would say things like in Galatians 3, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you're in Christ, we're all together. If we're all together, then we can't be apart. You can't be part of one tribe or the other. You can't treat someone over here with disrespect because they're your brother. And ver And yet these verses that we're familiar with, over 2,000 years of ch church history later, this understanding of a new humanity and its implications have been a constant battleground. It's only a few hundred years ago since slavery was abolished. It's only a few decades ago that we had the civil rights movement um, spearheaded by Martin Luther King, and we had the anti-apartheid movement led by Nelson Mandela. It's only over a decade ago since the first modern anti-slavery laws in the UK, and in the church too. 
It's only been in the last few decades that we have rightly wrestled with the topic of women in ministry and leadership. And I'm proud to be part of a church where there is no glass ceiling for women in leadership, eldership, or any form of ministry. But it's taken us until now to get there. And yet Paul wrote 2,000 years ago that we're all part of this new humanity, this new super, supernatural humanity where everyone is now in if they accept Jesus. Um, and Ephesians 2 talks about specifically this, this term, this new humanity. It's a little bit of a longer passage. I'm going to read through it. I'm not going to go into huge depth on it, but just try and let it wash over you a wee bit. Okay? Ephesians 2 from verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves a circumcision, which is done by, in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded as citizens in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. No more polarization. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself a nice little club where everybody gets along. Okay? Or one new humanity out of the two thus making peace, one new humanity, something completely different, something of supernatural birth and origin. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. If we could only get what that means, to be part of this new humanity, we would find ourselves unable to be complicit in the systems and the structures of this world that force people apart and declare us's and them's. That's not good English, but it's good preaching. So. So let me just show you a very quick picture of what this new humanity might look like, if we can set up that wee video. So last Saturday, some of the women from this church attended a multicultural event hosted by Ancora, which is a Portuguese-speaking church that meets down in Foundry uh, Street in Portadown. And these women from all the nations gathered together to worship, to pray, to teach. And if there's ever a picture that looks like a new humanity to me, this is it. And wonderful that quite a number of women in our church took part in it, um, and that happened in our town. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping God together, and yet such an unfamiliar experience to many of us. So we've got so far to go when it comes to trying to do this Christian thing well. But it's lovely to see that. So we need to understand where the battle lines are drawn. Um, there's a process that leads to the poor treatment of others that takes us from a place of love and care of others to the conditions where the life of another is completely devalued. 
where other human beings who are made in the image of God deform into an object of scorn and even hatred. We can all find ourselves complicit in this toxic narrative. And so I'll come up with three days to tell you how it works. I'm going to try and explain them. Um, but they are, and these are big words, I mean, Al would be proud, disassociation, dehumanization, and demonization. Okay, that's impressive, isn't it? So uh, let me tell you how this works in my life. I was thinking about you know this, and I thought, well, let me tell you what the group of people that really annoy me at the minute that I disassociate myself from, because I'm not like them. I don't behave like them. I'm not rude and ignorant like they are. Boy racers. Boy racers in this town. Not only boy racers in this town, but boy racers in this car park over here. Okay, their lowered suspensions and their little lights under the bottom and their extra weird large wheels and they park across three car parking spaces and completely ignore the fact that it's illegal to park in a disabled parking space, but they park across three of them. <laughs> quite a lot of them drive Volkswagen Golfs too, right? I know there's quite a lot of Volkswagen Golf drivers here. So when I come in the car park this morning, I normally park in a specific space. You'll never guess what was in it when I got here, all right? I'm not gonna say who it was, but they know. And so what I have done with boy racers is to disassociate myself from them, okay? I've given them a title, first of all, boy racers, okay? So I've, I've, I've actually changed them from being people to being a thing, um, which is what we do, we objectify. And I've sort of dehumanized them in that process as well. And, and now I, I, can, I can take it further and I can demonize them. I can see these are awful, the worst people on the roads. These people, there's you know, fundamentally something wrong with them to sit in a car park every Friday, Saturday night, eat takeaway food, and then throw their papers out the window into our car park. Okay? And <laughs> genuinely, God keeps going, going, you've got a problem to me. And I'm, I'm just having a bit of fun with that as well, because the other days I look at them circling in our car park and think, wow, isn't it great? How do, we, how do we tell them about Jesus? You know, how do we reach out to them? God seems to have brought them to our door in some kind of weird way that annoys me, but um, <laughs> how can we love them better? But you see, these things are contrary to the divine image bearing reality that God sees. They're fueled by and perpetuated by individualism and are the breeding ground for tribalism. Tribalism is one of the most toxic um, forces in our society. There's no place for it in the church. I despair to hear of it becoming a trendy word around some churches to describe even things that we do and what we're about. Because it's not a word that sits well with the kingdom of God. We're not called to be part of tribes. We're called to be part of a new humanity. And we should use words like community, and we should use words like family, but not, not, not tribe. To disassociate yourself from others, we use labels. What do we call it? other people? These uh, labels start to dehumanize the poor, the Catholics, the nationalists, the prods, the chavs, the snobs, the evangelicals, the rich, the politicians, the Irish, the English, the Americans and the pastors, 
Okay? When we do that, we are automatically dehumanizing them from being actual people to being a thing. And when we dehumanize, we can demonize eventually. And they become the objects of our wrath or our scorn or our disrespect. And when we label someone in that way, it's easier to treat them less than someone. It's easy for us to treat them as someone less than, than the way God sees them. Uh, take cancel culture as an example. This is the idea that we can, that someone can be canceled by a group of people who have decided that this person, um, often very someone reasonably famous in, in social media world, has a view that doesn't fit in with the prevailing cultural social media narrative, and so someone decides somewhere that this person who was not, was formerly in is now out. We're going to cancel them. We're going to cancel everything about them. We're going to try and get all their advertising cancelled, their concerts cancelled, their TV programs cancelled, because they have stepped out of line. They're not in our tribe. They're not in our group anymore. They're not in our polarized perspective anymore. We're going to take them out of that and put them over here, so we need to cancel them in order to do that. But you know the thing about cancel culture is that we cancel contracts. We don't cancel people. You can't cancel a person. Whether you like them or not, they're made in the image of God. A person is not a piece of paper to be ripped up and thrown away because you don't like it anymore or because you want out of it. Worse than that, we dehumanize to the point of demonization. It's not enough for this person to be pushed out of the limelight. They need to be vilified and shamed in the process. And so along with cancel culture comes shame culture. And this is not just a modern phenomenon. The internet has a wonderful way of making this sort of thing happen. But 500 years ago, there was a different way. When Gutenberg invented the, um, the old information superhighway called the printing press, the most popular book printed was... The Bible, the second most popular book printed was, there's only one person who knows, not quite, it depends if you listen to the same podcast as me or not, okay, a book called the Malleus Malacorum, okay, which obviously you know in Latin, means the hammer of witches. It was written by a guy called Henry, Henrik Kramer in the 15th century. He was a German priest. And that book got in the hands of many, many people. And it's probably more than anything else led to 200 years of people being demonized, of people being burnt at the stake, as people being outed as witches and drowned in rivers. They reckon hundreds of thousands of people died because people became something less than human in the eyes of others because of information that said, if somebody does this and acts like this, then they're this. Therefore, they're less than human. Therefore, we have the right to actually just set them on fire or drown them. Hundreds of thousands of people died at the hands of that. And so we, that is a stark warning from history, but we cannot be complicit in the drawing of lines in, in the entering into polarized perspectives that lead to division and separation of people. We need to find ourselves, we find ourselves willing participants in whatever social media war is popular at the time, and that is wrong, and I need to finish. Um, 
We live in a time of the culture wars, and as Christians, we often find ourselves actually us painted as the evil in society. Do you know what? When we're painted as the evil in society, one of the questions we should ask ourselves is why? And maybe society has a point, and maybe we should take notice. Maybe there is some justification. That's why we have to find a different way. Rather than go on on the offensive or defensive, we need to find a way that looks a lot more like Jesus and choose a different path. But to do this, we need to first of all stop participating blindly in the us versus them narrative. So we need to, my third point, and I'm nearly on four, okay, is to stop participating. Where we are mindlessly participating in the systems that cause separation and oppression of the other. What does that look like in our lives? Even when it comes to this, a topic that's really, really important, like abortion, we should rightly hold a certain opinion and perspective, but how we hold it and what we say and how we act and how we speak should come from the place of understanding that everybody involved in the conversation is a divine image bearer. That to, ostr- to demonize another is to dehumanize them and is to go against the will of God. So we need to do our research rather than jumping on the latest social media campaign that seems to be promoting our cause. We need to be willing to engage both with head and heart Bathing everything we do in prayer to find another way forward, taking the place of a servant and a student to walk in the kind of path that Jesus walked. The current polarization and culture wars environment is so dangerous, and it happens um, behind the veil of social media channels and keyboard warriors and trolls. But these people, these trolls, that's another good word, isn't it? If you want to dehumanize someone are often hurting, broken, lonely, needing to be loved and understood. But we can vilify them because everybody else does. Everybody else does. Trolls, that's a great word, isn't it? Imagine being, if I started calling you, some people in this room, a troll. Can the church really become this place of radical welcome and family, which is actually countercultural to all this polarization? Can we be the place of extravagant welcome? Can we be the place of a new humanity where everyone is welcome and where we're willing to get to know the other? We can't go down the road of so much of American evangelical Christianity, which has found itself entrenched in a culture war. It has actually chosen to take up one of the positions of us against them. And if Jesus was to walk into the room, I think he would go somewhere else, that he wouldn't stand with them, that maybe he wouldn't stand with us, but he would stand somewhere else, and we would find ourselves with a decision to make about where we are going to go. Could it be that the world um, that we live in could experience what it is for people of peace to walk into families and communities and to tell a different story? Could we truly seek to love and understand those in our communities extravagantly enough that we would earn the right to speak truth, hope, and love from a place of friendship rather than self-proclaimed spiritual authority? When you do the hard miles of this in your community, you find that you get to do that eventually. I was in a meeting the other day, and um, there was another Christian in the meeting, and they sent me a message afterwards, and they were like, 
is it just me? Or isn't it amazing when you get to speak the language of the kingdom in a meeting with the local council about community planning? Absolutely love it. It took a long time to get there. Right, I'm really going to try and finish, sorry. So my fourth point is unity in diversity. Okay, this is where we need to get to, unity and diversity. There's a big difference between unity and uniformity. Um, unity happens when we embrace the difference in other people, when we celebrate it. It can be more chaotic, and it requires more effort to appreciate and to understand, to listen, but its rewards are a lot more, um, are a lot more. But uniformity is easier to achieve than unity. Uniformity is that everything is the same. Unity is that we appreciate the difference in each other but love each other anyway. Uniformity is that we're all the same. I don't want that for our church. I don't want uniformity. I don't want us to all kind of fit into a certain Christian way of doing things and living so that when somebody walks through the door who doesn't look like us, they don't feel that they fit in. I used to be part of a church years ago, and a guy uh, was in East Belfast, and this guy from lower inner East Belfast got saved, and I can't, I'm going to pick a different name, let's call him John, and John would get him up to the front of the church and be like, all right, mate, I got saved, so it did, and it's, it's brilliant, God's the best thing ever, so he is, and um, he, he was just really, but he almost became like a kind of little caricatured Christian trophy of look at the guy from wherever else who got saved and he loved dance music so he did right he loved it. and after a number of months I saw him one day I thought what has happened to you because he wasn't he was wearing he was wearing uh, chinos and he had a check shirt on and he told me he was listening to Van Morrison I thought God help us all <laughs> he thinks that's what being a Christian is because he had started to conform to our norm. He had gone for uniformity. He had thought, if I'm going to fit in and be a Christian, I need to have a check shirt and a, and a V-neck jumper, and, and I need to wear certain trousers and a brown shoes, and, and I need to listen to different music. And you're like, this is not what the kingdom of God about is about. This is not what the new humanity is about. It's about so much more. And if you have any of those clothing options on you, <laughs> please don't be offended. But we have to realize that we are the kingdom come. And if we're going to be the kingdom come, we can't be part of the systems of the world in the same way. And we have to move beyond them. We have to follow the Jesus way, this new humanity on earth. Because our world needs that right now. The problems in our world and in our society are getting so much bigger. The gap between what our government can provide to help people and what um, help is needed is getting wider and wider. And it will never close again, and something else needs to fill the void. What needs to fill the void is a life-giving, loving, sacrificial community of people who have decided that the other is their brother and sister, and they're going to give their lives to seeing their communities and the people around them transformed and they're going to do that with radical love and sacrifice and in fact they are going to be as Matthew 13 verse 33 says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed about 60 pounds of flour until it worked its way all the way through the dough 
And I am convinced that that's what the church can be and should be, is that we choose to, that we're not going to sign up to the narratives and the polarization or whatever it is that the world tries to keep us apart, but that we're going to seek unity in here, not uniformity. I'm going to seek unity out there because we're going to be the everyone, every day, everywhere that transforms our communities. We're facing a two-year recession. That will effectively be a 10 years plus um, situation of instability. Um, our government will continue to remove services um, because they're more interested in keeping the economy afloat than they are people. And now is the time for the church to step forward, to step into that void, to, to see the kingdom come, lives transformed, to speak hope and to be hope carriers um, as well. So I would love, love for us to decide that we're going to join in that adventure and let's actually just put the specs on, the kingdom specs, and go, I'm not taking part anymore in that narrative. I'm not joining that group or that tribe because that tribe's against this one. I'm choosing a different way. I'm choosing the Jesus way. And if Jesus is standing there with a sword in his hand, I want to be on his side in this battle. So why don't we stand and let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your gracious, loving mercy that welcomes us into family, that gives us hope and identity, that makes us part of this new, one, great humanity. And let us not slip back from this new humanity and all that it means to something less. Let us not find ourselves sitting in tribalized, polarized positions that enable us to be part of us and against them. Maybe choose to go beyond that at every stage and every possibility. So Lord, come and do a work in my heart. I need more love and I need more compassion rather than trying to control my life by, by keeping other people at bay from choosing to, to be part of one thing rather than another. Lord, show us what you're doing. Stir our hearts. Give us more compassion for those around us. Help us to demonstrate your love and to be your presence wherever we are. Lord, may we be yeast work through the dough of this society so that it will rise and not fall in these coming hours. In Jesus' name, amen.